You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. Our sermon text today is Acts 2, 37 through 47. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added to that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Okay, you can have a seat. And if you have a Bible, you can turn to Matthew chapter 28. We're going to look at um, two passages primarily. We'll start in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, and then we'll pinball all over the place. They'll be on the screen, don't worry. And then we'll land in Acts 2 that Bree just read. And hopefully you have one of these. This little listening outline will help you kind of track the pinball as it goes everywhere. So... um, Uh, I promise this will make sense, but that little uh, handout that's back there will help you to follow along if you want, and there's a couple of blanks for those of you that like to fill in blanks. So there was a man and woman who went to bed uh, about midnight, and uh, and the phone rang um, about an hour later, and it was one of those things when the phone rings at one o'clock, it's usually not good news, especially when you have a kid in college uh, like they do, and uh, so half awake, the man picked up the phone and heard a voice on the other end that said with tears, Daddy, I'm pregnant. He heard the voice, and even being half asleep, said, Honey, I love you. We'll talk about this later. Try to get some sleep. The man had a fitful night of sleep and and woke up in the morning and said to his wife, "Let's, uh, Let's write our daughter a letter. And this is an excerpt from that letter that they composed that next morning to their daughter who... uh, So this is what it says. It says, Though I weep inside... I cannot condemn you, because I sin too. Your transgression is no worse than mine. It's just different. It all comes from the same sin package that you inherited from us. We're praying much. We love you more than I can say. And we respect you too, as always. Remember, God's love is even in this. Maybe even especially in this. This is a day of testing, but hold our ground we must. God will give us the victory. We look forward to you being home soon. I love Dad. You sense the, the gospel grace in that letter, can't you? 
And uh, it really pictures well what we're hoping that we can be as a church is a display of that kind of grace. And so we've been spending the month of January just talking about why we started this church, what we want to be about, what our priorities are. And you can see in this letter a little bit of what I think we're trying to get at here as a new community of faith here in the city and what we want to be about. And so you see in this letter, and you also, I hope, will see in this church, is that we will prioritize the gospel above all. You see uh, that we will enjoy God in all things. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. And then last week we talked about display, that the church is meant to be a display of God's glory. We looked at that from Ephesians chapter 3 in a number of different places. And this is really a part two to last week's of talking about in what ways is the church a display of God's glory. And this is kind of a part two. And I I think I've got a slide here that shows um, kind of where we left things last time. One more, just to kind of jog your memory. So this is sort of where we left things. And when we talk about the church being a display of God's glory, we talked about the word in Greek in the New Testament for church is ekklesia, which means called out assembly. And there's a big C version of that, and there's a little c. The Bible talks in two different ways. One is the big C is all Christians everywhere from all time um, being one assembly. And one day, eventually around his throne even now, one assembly, one called out assembly is what ekklesia means. So in a sense, there's the big C church of all Christians everywhere throughout time. But the overwhelming use of the, of the word ecclesia in the New Testament has to do with little c church, which is like what we are, a, a, a local called out assembly of believers who are following Jesus together um, under Jesus's leadership. And so we looked at some different metaphors. There's dozens and dozens of metaphors for the church to help us get a sense of what we're supposed to be, who we are as a local little c church, an assembly of God's people, a called out assembly brought together and we looked at four in particular that the church is called the bride of christ which pictures this intimacy that jesus has with his bride this identification this oneness this intimacy the beauty and the 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 the, uh the passion that jesus has for his bride and he makes her beautiful and we have at the end of the bible the idea of 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 christians coming to jesus as a bride uh um, being presented before her husband we also had the, the metaphor of the local church being a body of Christ, which has this idea of being interdependent life, union, unity, cooperation, mutual care, all under one head, which is Christ. We, we talked about the church being a temple of the Holy Spirit, a place where the worship of God, uh, where the presence of God can be experienced. You go into a church and you've got the Spirit um, that, is, that indwells those people is together, it's gathered, and you have the worship of, the, of God's people together at this t- temple. And then one of my favorites is the, the church as an embassy of the kingdom, which an embassy is in a foreign kingdom representing the interests of a faraway kingdom. And when you step into that embassy, you're actually on, like for the U.S., you actually step onto U.S. soil, the flag flies. The flag of the United States flies over the U.S. embassy no matter where it is in the world, so... The local church, wherever it is found, flies not the flag of its nation, but the flag of Christ. The kingship of Christ flags over that. And so when you step into a church, you step into, in some mysterious sense, the kingdom of God. Where the king reigns and rules and the the place is filled with his ambassadors who are offering reconciliation to enemies. Not conquest in that sense, not violence, but reconciliation through the king. 
So we have this beautiful picture of the church. And then we looked at Jesus only talks about the church two times, and it's both in the Gospel of Matthew. And the, the Gospel of Matthew is all about Jesus being Israel's king. It's all about the kingdom of God, an overwhelming kingdom, kingdom, kingdom. And then when Jesus asks Peter, who do the people say that I am? And Peter offers this confession of, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus then says, Peter, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And on this rock, you are, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. It's the first time Jesus uses the word church, a called out assembly, and the gates of hell will not overcome it, which means Jesus is not looking to storm Rome. He's, learning, he's wanting to storm hell. The kingdom is going to storm hell by means of the church, this embassy that is going to um, be the ones. And he tells them that he gives them the keys of the kingdom and they'll speak for heaven. And you've got it there in your outline that we kind of consolidated this down that, that Jesus affirmed and included Peter into the kingdom. He said, you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church. He, he, he affirmed and included Peter into, verbally did that and now he hands that over and says, you the church have the responsibility to hold out the message of the king and then to, infer, uh, to affirm and include those who rightly respond to it. So the church speaks for heaven by affirming and including those who rightly respond to the king. He speaks for heaven. We have, the, um, we have the opportunity to speak on behalf of the king for those who rightly respond to the king. We don't determine what the right response to the king is. We just recognize it and affirm it. Okay? So the church doesn't dispense salvation. It just recognizes when it sees it and puts the the sticker of Jesus on them, puts the, the endorsement on them. In fact, we just did that in baptism. We heard the testimony of Braden, and through baptism, we exercised the keys. We affirmed and included a right profession of faith, a right response to the king, and we are affirming and including him in. So we did Matthew 16 work today in obedience to Jesus. The second time that Jesus uses the word church is in Matthew 18, and this is a bit more of a sobering responsibility that the church has. The church speaks for heaven by denying and excluding those who wrongly respond to the king. And so Jesus gives this scenario that if someone is in unrepentant sin against somebody and they're doing damage in the church, they're breaking relationships, they will not submit themselves to the king, they're living out of step with the king, they're in the church, they claim to be under the lordship of the king, but they just will not cooperate in that way. There is a warning system and eventually it says, tell it to the church and the church has the solemn responsibility to put out those who don't want to submit themselves to the king. Not in a vindictive kind of way, but in a gracious way to go, you have to be rightly related to the king to be part of the kingdom. He is the kingdom. So if you commit treason against him, we can't recognize you as a citizen. So Matthew 18, we have this responsibility between 16 and 18 to speak on behalf of heaven by affirming and including a right response to the king and denying and excluding those who wrongly respond to the king. And then brings us to Matthew 28, which hopefully you have right in front of you. Just to round this out, how the church represents the kingdom and what Jesus intends for the church to do. Matthew 28, 18 says this. So Jesus has risen from the dead. He's hung out with his disciples in kind of this sporadic way. He's appeared here and done this and he's taught them these things. And he's about to ascend into heaven and these are his final words to these handful of disciples that are on the, on the mountain. And here's what he says. Watch very closely what he says here. I think Justin's going to unpack this a little bit next week for you. But look at this. And let's add this to the 16 and 18 that Jesus has spoken about. And Jesus came and said to them, 
All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That sounds like a king, right? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He's the king of everything. You can't find any realm where Jesus is not king. And so then he's going to give, the king is going to give his orders. He's going to give his charge to his church. This is how the kingdom advances. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Very simple. Very simple charge as he's leaving, going, this is what you're to be about. As kingdom citizens in this called out assembly called the church, you have the responsibility now to make disciples. And there's a certain way I want you to do that. And I'm the king. I get to tell you what to do. You're the subject. You don't get to choose what you do and don't obey, right? And so you have this authoritative claim of Jesus before he ascends into heaven, and then you have these marching orders to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. So let's add that in. Let's go 16, 18, and 28. And what we see, in addition to the church speaking for heaven by affirming and including those who rightly respond to the king, Matthew 18, the church also has the solemn responsibility of denying and excluding those who wrongly respond to the king. And then the church makes disciples of all nations in obedience to the king. That's our aim. That's our goal. That's what this church is meant to be about. So, I want to ask the question, answer, ask and answer the question of how. How does the church do what Christ says the church does? How do we do this? And uh, there are so many things we could talk about. We could spend a whole year just unpacking this. But I'm going to boil it down to three things. One is the right preaching of the gospel. The right preaching of the gospel the right preaching of the scriptures. So out of the Reformation, there came uh, just, a, you know, Christianity, uh, particularly these reformers had to really, they were really rethinking everything in light of the scriptures. They, they, were, they were discontented, they were frustrated with how the Roman Catholic system had gone, felt like it had been corrupted. And Martin Luther and other reformers wanted to bring change according to the scriptures to, to kind of reclaim a right view of salvation, a right view of authority in the church and scripture. And what they came up with, the Reformation kind of comes up with these three marks of a true church. Some say two, some say three. One is the right preaching of the scriptures. The second one, which is actually going to be the second one on here, the right administration of the ordinances, or sometimes called sacraments, and the right practice of church discipline. I'm going to switch a third one out. I'm going to include the right practice of church discipline under the second one. But I want to kind of use that framework, and then we'll land in in Acts chapter 2. So the right preaching of the gospel, you can go back to my January 3rd message to talk about what that means, the gospel above all. We unpack that from 1 Corinthians 15. So I'm not going to spend much time on that this week. Also, Justin's going to go there a little bit next week. So let's leave that one there. The right preaching of the gospel, the right message of the king is sent out about who the king is, what he does, what it means to be rightly submitted to him. The right message of the king, the right proclamation of the gospel is first and foremost. Secondly, the right administrating of the ordinances. The right administrating of the ordinances. Those are big words. Administrating we means just how we practice them in the church in obedience to Jesus. Jesus gave us two ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper, by which to do our job of affirming, including, and of, of denying and excluding. These are the tools that he's given us. These are the only two that he's given in that sense to publicly, as a church, um, do our job. I want to zoom out for just a minute and look at the entire Bible, particularly the Old Testament, for just a second. Uh, we could spend so much time talking about just these ordinances, we're going to just do kind of a quick thing. But I want to zoom out for just a moment, and 
I want you to think about for a minute the two major, two massive salvation events in the Old Testament. There's a bunch of them, but what are the two big ones? One is in Genesis 6 through 9, Noah and the great flood. The other one is Israel and the great exodus. Those are probably the two, like, if you were to pick the two biggest deliverance events in the Old Testament, Noah and the great flood, Israel and the great exodus. Now, the way God goes about working out those deliverances, I think, is instructive for how we should see our job as the church. God seems to have this pattern of how he likes to do salvation stuff, how he likes to do deliverance stuff. And I think it'll help us to see that God is doing, didn't just pick randomly the things he wanted to do in the Old Testament and then just decided to toss it all out. It's meant to point us to and inform us on how the gospel actually works. The Bible is one big story and the gospel kind of fits this pattern that we see in the Old Testament. Let me show the pattern to you. First, there's this fourfold pattern in both of these salvation events. One is you have the warning of divine wrath. In the Noah story, right, he's going, to wipe the flood, he's going to wipe the earth out because of its great wickedness with a flood, a great flood. In the Exodus story, you have the oldest son is going to be killed by the angel of death in, in, the, in the Passover story, right? So you've got this warning of judgment that's coming. And then you second have the call to trust in his saving provision. In the flood story, you have the provision of an ark. They're there to build an ark and they're to trust in God's salvation. That if they're in this ark, they will be saved from the wrath that is coming. In the Exodus story, they're to trust in the blood of a lamb put over the door. They're to trust in the provision that the death and the blood of this lamb will cause the angel of death to pass over their house. That's why they call it Passover. Is the angel of death has passed over and there's no judgment for those that are trusting in God's provision. Warning of wrath trusting in the provision of God for salvation. Then in both of these stories, you have the passing through water as a new beginning. The passing through water as a new beginning. They pass through the water in the ark, and then they come out of the ark, and it's a new world. It's a new people. You also, in the, uh, in the Exodus story, you have the people passing through the Red Sea, and now they're a new nation. And then lastly, the fourth part is they gather as a new covenant people before God and they receive a new covenant from God. In, the, in, the, in, in Genesis chapter 9, they come out of the ark, they offer a sacrifice, and God makes a covenant. He says, be fruitful and multiply. He, re, he re-ups the covenant, and then he says, I will never again condemn. And then he gives all of these other instructions about if someone takes a life, what do you do? And there's these new rules, there's this new humanity, there's this new people around a new covenant before God, and they, um, they become this new covenant people. Likewise, in Exodus, they come out and they gather around the mountain, right? And they receive their instructions from God on how their new community is meant to live. So you see this pattern of, of divine wrath, trust in the saving provision, pass through water, and then gather as a new covenant people under God. A new group of people together. So... Um, and we see these things, uh, this framework set up. Now, you might be thinking, Josh, I think you just made this up. I think you're reading back into the text a little bit because maybe you see where this is going. But I want you to think about 1 Peter 3 for just a moment. It's going to pop up on the screen. Look at how the apostles read these stories in light, of, in light of the gospel, in light of Christianity, in light of this new Jesus thing that's kicking off. 
First Peter 3 says this, God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Verse 21, baptism, which you just witnessed, which corresponds to this, now saves you not as the removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers, have been subjected to him. So we're to see a bit of a proto-gospel in the Noah story. Wrath is coming, trust in the provision, pass through water, new people. New people. He's saying that's, that's what you're supposed to think of in some ways of, with baptism, is passing through the water and becoming new people. And you've got kind of this weird thing there where it says now saves you, but then he makes it clear, not as removal of dirt from the body, it's not washing away sins, but it's the cry of a new heart to go, God, would you please cleanse me? Which he always answers yes. Which is why I don't think infant baptism, I don't think an infant is able to make that cry for a new conscience. I think, it, I think it's a believer with a new heart that makes the cry of the new conscience that is talked about here. 1 Corinthians 10. So the Noah story is meant to picture a little bit of what new, it, it's, it's a framework to show us how the new covenant works. 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 4. Check this out. This is one of my favorites. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. This is talking about the Exodus. So there was judgment. They trusted in the Passover lamb. It passed over and now they're being brought out through water into a new covenant as a new people. It's like, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And then look at the word he uses. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And they all ate the same spiritual food. And all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And the rock was Christ. So how... Does Paul in 1 Corinthians want you to see the Exodus story? As literal history for sure, but also as a pattern that you see the gospel message, new covenant people matching up. People delivered by the provision of God, passing through, he actually uses the word baptism, passing through the water, and then having new spiritual food that comes from Christ, which is a picture of the Lord's Supper, I think. In fact, later in 1 Corinthians 10, the cup of blessing that we bless is not a participation of the blood. Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. So you have the idea of, of, I think, membership there. The cup of blessing that we bless is not a participation, a membering in the blood of Christ. And the bread that we, not I, but we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. So the taking of one bread together actually in some way makes us one body. For we, are, we who are many individuals become one body, for we all partake of the one bread. There is something about taking the Lord's Supper together that actually brings, makes us one body. We saw that in Ephesians 4. There is one baptism, one spirit. And so we have this picture. Think of Jesus. Jesus, when he comes to John the Baptist, John says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So there is judgment for the sin of the world, and this is the one. This is the provision. And then Jesus does what? He's baptized. He passes through the water. Jesus himself clicks into the salvation pattern of, of the deliverance pattern that's in the Old Testament. In fact, he comes to John. John makes this big declaration of, yep, 
The world has a problem, a sin problem. There's wrath coming to remove the sin from the world, but there's a lamb. There is a divine provision. Trust in him. And then Jesus says, I need to be baptized by you. And John goes, you don't need to be baptized. And Jesus says, you must baptize me to fulfill all righteousness. I think Jesus is fulfilling this pattern. He is the new Israel. He's the new Noah. He is the one who is leading. And so he himself will participate. He himself will fulfill. He himself will go into that deliverance pattern that we see there. Okay? So there we go. That is, so, uh, so with that big framework now, you think of Jesus and you, you then begin to understand how these, I think, ordinances kind of fit. And God delivers by his own work. So we're not talking about this is what saves you or justifies you. But we are saying that this is how the world will now begin to see. The people were delivered, but then they became a new nation. They passed out of Egypt, came into a new place, and became a new covenant people that was distinct. So here we go. Baptism kind of fits that passing through water, does it not? I think that's what's intended here is that we come to faith, we, we hear the warnings, and we hear the hope of the gospel, we trust in it, and we're saved. At that moment, we are as saved as we could ever be. But then you have Jesus in Matthew 28 saying, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, pass them through water in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so we have baptism as this initiating sign that we just saw even today. Acts 10, Acts is full of this pattern of warning, trust in the provision of God, be baptized. Like that, we see that over and over again. Acts 10, 47 and 48. This is a really uh, interesting one because uh, the Gentiles um, are responding to the gospel uh, after Peter. And, and this was a big deal because Jesus is like the Jewish Messiah. He's the savior of the Jewish people. So the fact that, that Gentile people are beginning to respond to faith in Jesus is a bit unnerving and unsettling to the Jewish people. That, that's our Messiah. You can't have him. And so now it's obvious that they're receiving the Holy Spirit. They're receiving these kind of supernatural markers of coming to faith, uh, being filled with the Spirit. And here's what Peter says in Acts 10, 47 and 48. Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people? We cannot, we cannot, we cannot not affirm and include them. Baptism was this sign of affirmation and inclusion. And if God has accepted them, then we must give them baptism. We must affirm and include them. Can anyone withhold, bapt anyone withhold water for baptizing this people is the call that he gives to the other Jewish believers who are having a hard time with Gentiles, non-Jewish people becoming Christians. He's like, we can't withhold it. If God is saved, then we must baptize them. Anyone, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And then verse 48, and then he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Holy Spirit. He wanted them to submit to the affirmation and inclusion of the body of Christ. And so they could neither withhold it or they would be against the kingdom of God. And those who were Gentiles needed to be baptized in order to, be, to receive the affirmation that God intended. Romans 6, 3-4. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ, Jesus, were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Paul is writing a letter to a church that he's never been to and he's assuming every one of them have been baptized. He assumes that that's part and parcel of being a Christian is that you identify with him. He's never been there before and yet he's reasoning that their fight against sin is based on the fact that they have been baptized. 
He's assuming that that's normal Christian stuff. So baptism is that identifying sign. It is part of that Matthew 16 affirming and including those who have come to faith in Jesus, who've made a right response to the king. Both the church and the believer are making a public statement, as I said earlier. The believer is making a public statement. They're going on record that I belong to Christ and his people. And the church itself is baptizing by saying this is one of Jesus' people. This is a citizen. This is a right response to the king. And he's one of us. So, I, you know, when I was, when my, uh, when Lydia was born, we have this sweet little video of us presenting her. Like, Bree and I were at the hospital super early. Uh, they, I don't know where the boys were, but um, I think somebody, somebody brought them. One of, the, one of your cousins, I think brought them in that next morning and they come walking in and we presented Lydia we presented look this is your little sister and they oohed and odd and all this stuff and gave her little toys and stuff that they wanted to give her and in a sense that's what's happening in baptism it's like we have a new baby brother or sister right we have we have a new family member right and so the church is presenting to the world and to the rest of the church like this is a new believer this is one of your brothers and sisters we have to care for them now right We'd have that conversation with our boys. (laughs) You you have to be very gentle with her. You have to be careful. You have to take care of her. You have to look out for her. That's what's happening in baptism is this presenting to the world and to the church that the family has grown, that there's a new believer. And that's how we, uh, that's the identifying and initiating sign. Which then, Lord's Supper then, is the ongoing and renewing sign. We baptize once in response to a right response to the king. And then we have this ongoing renewing sign of the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper then is a church's act of communing with Christ and each other and of commemorating Christ's death by partaking in bread and wine and a baptized believer's act of receiving Christ's benefits and renewing his or her commitment to Christ and his people, thereby making the church one body and marking it off from the world. That's a big definition. The final step of church discipline is to be removed from the table. It's to be no longer considered a part of the family of God because one is just refusing to live submitted to the king. You get that? That's the Matthew 18 thing. So the Lord's table in that sense is church membership. Membership, it's a seat at the table. It's a seat at the table of the local church. And everyone who trusts in Christ is welcome at his family table. You just simply come through the door of baptism and pull up a seat. It's how you come into the household of faith. So, we, part of how we do what the church, uh, how the church does what Christ says the church does is one, rightly preaching the gospel. Second, rightly administrating the ordinances, these two instruments that God has given us so that the world will know who the people of God are. We rightly practice those under his lordship. And then lastly, and this is one that I've added, by rightly, by rightly one anothering in covenant love and unity. So you see that Noah and his family comes out and there are now a new people with a new commission. You see at the Passover, the people coming out, they gather around Mount Sinai, they're being fed by Christ himself apparently. Manna and water in the wilderness, food and drink, and they're to be a, they receive a new commission, a new covenant, a new relationship with God. And also the people who trust in Jesus Christ, uh, trust in his provision, pass through water and now are a new people. The local church is a new people under a new covenant. In fact, when Jesus, when he instituted the Lord's Supper, said, I, this is the blood of a new covenant. And then he goes on immediately after that to talk in John 13 about giving a new commandment. Here is what this new covenant is like with new commandments. A new commandment I give you, 
that you love one another. That's what we mean by the one anothering. That the church one another's one another. There's 50 to 60 one another commands in the New Testament. And they all fall under the banner of love. The command I give you is love. The fruit of the Spirit is love. Romans, uh, or 1 Corinthians 13. Um, if I speak in the tongue of men and of angels, if I give my body to be burned but have not love, I am nothing. I'm not a covenant citizen if I don't have love. And at the end he, of, of 1 Corinthians 13, now these three abide, faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is love. The new covenant command is love. And there's all different ways to love one another, which is why there's 50 to 60 commands, one another commands that we do with each other. Preach the gospel, right administration of the ordinances, and a whole lot of one anothering under the banner of love. So rightly one anothering one another in covenant unity and love. John 17, we just looked at this just a few weeks ago. Jesus, when he prays, Right before he's going to go and essentially purchase this new covenant with his own blood, he prays for his church, and then this is what he says in John 20 through 23. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, which means us, those who get the word of the gospel passed down and believe, that there may be one just as you, uh, Father, are in me and I in you, and they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I and them and you and me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. So what are the church's superpowers? Love, unity, under Christ. So the church does what Christ says it does by proclaiming the gospel, rightly practicing the ordinances, and one anothering one another in covenant love and unity. So, do you see this four-part salvation plan being continued by God? God has a pattern that he loves to repeat. This warning of judgment, trust in saving provision, pass through water as new people, gather as a new people commissioned with a new covenant. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Pass them through water in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit and teach them to obey all the one another's I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always to the end of the age. He, he set the whole thing up. Your whole Bible is preaching one message of deliverance and he set these patterns up so that when the gospel came, it would, it would pop and it would, it would shine in all of the glory and you would go, oh, this matches. God, this was God's plan all along. It wasn't like you had a plan A, that didn't work, plan B, that didn't work, plan C, ah, finally we found something that worked. It's like, no, the whole thing, the whole thing was one salvation plan. So, how did the apostles then apply this? Go to Acts chapter 2. It's on your list, on your sheet there. It'll be on the screen as well. So Jesus ascends into heaven. He's given this, this commission. They're standing there like, well, now what do we do? <laughs> and the angels say, uh, get, get going. Um, and, and, and Jesus gives them kind of this, he gives them, if you look at the different commissioning passages, each of them words it a little bit differently across the Gospels and in Acts. Um, there seems to be this conflicting thing of like, Go and make disciples. Wait for the Holy Spirit to come. <laughs> like, well, well, what, what do you want us to do? You want us to go or you want us to wait? And the reality is, is that 10 days later, the Holy Spirit came in Acts chapter 2. And now they had the power to be able to do the churchy things that they were meant to do. And it's just fascinating to see exactly what happens right out of the gate. So Peter gets up. Holy Spirit comes. There's all of this um, 
there's all these speaking uh, of God's wonders and God's salvation in all these different languages, and this crowd is beginning to gather. And Peter gets up and preaches the best sermon he can muster at the time. Um, I think that sermon would get a C- in my class, but God used it. Uh, in my preaching class in seminary, I don't think it would have gone real great, but that's on target enough, and look what happens in Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 37. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? He had warned them of judgment and then told them that Christ is the way to be made right. So you see that, that pattern, right? Warning of judgment, and there is a saving provision through Jesus Christ, whom you crucified, he says. And here's what they say, brothers, what shall we do? We feel convicted. We want the provision. We want to trust in the provision. Tell us what the provision is, Peter. And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the Holy Spirit, this comprehensive package deal of salvation. And trust is implied there. Repent means turn away from that, turn to this. So faith and repentance are, are two sides of the same coin. It's the turning away and turning towards something. And you will receive the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and your children and all who are far off. Everyone who calls on our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them. <laughs> so it was like, and he preached a while longer. Some of you know what that feels like. He kept preaching forever. And then finally saying, save yourself from this crooked generation. So, and look what happens. Verse 41, those who received his word, so trusted in the provision, were baptized, passed through water, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls to the covenant community, to the people. They were added. Added to what? Added to the church. Added to the church membership. And look at this, verse 42. They devoted themselves. Commitment. Covenant. It was just like, it made sense in their minds to we have been warned, we've trusted in the provision, we've passed through water, and now we're going to devote ourselves to the things Jesus taught. Do you see that? See the matching up? with the deliverance plan of God here for his people. And then look what happens. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Remember Ma uh, Matthew 28, teach them to obey all that I've commanded you. They devote themselves to that. They enter the fellowship community. They devote themselves to one another, no Lone Ranger Christian stuff. Devoted each other to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And look what happens. After their devotion, their covenant commitment with each other, awe came upon every soul. So often awe comes after commitment. After this devotion, awe came upon them. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together, had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and dis distributing to the proceeds as to, to all as any had need. They're one anothering each other in covenant commitment. You see that? You see the love and unity that's popping up in this very first church? And day after day, attending temple together, they had church every day. For some of us, every week's tough. Every day, these guys are getting together, attending temple together, breaking bread in their homes. They receive their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And their covenant love and unity produced what? The Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. The superpower of covenant love and unity works and brings people under the banner of the king. So how does that look in our church? And I just want to talk just briefly about our own covenant of church membership. I just want to cover this with you. So if you flip your page over, I squeeze the font a little bit. But I want to read this, read through this, and then I'm going to conclude and we'll be done. 
But here's how we're trying to put all that we're reading in Scripture kind of in one package deal. How do we condense this down? And then how do we invite you to be a part of it? This is our way of saying it. This isn't the only way of saying it, but this is what we're going for here in terms of our proclaiming the gospel, rightly administering the ordinances, and one anothering one another. How do we do that here? What are we aiming for? What, are, what kind of commitment are we asking? And so here's what our covenant of membership looks like. I'm just going to read this and you can follow along. Having been brought by God's grace to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and having been baptized as a believer and agreeing with the Redeeming Grace Church structure and doctrine, we now, depending upon the Holy Spirit, establish this covenant with one another. We understand this covenant to be a good summary of New Testament instruction about the normal Christian life. We just think this is normal stuff. This commitment is the normal Christian life. This is what signing up to be a part of the kingdom looks like. In all we do, we will aim to glorify and enjoy the God of our salvation from whom and through whom and to whom are all things. To him be all glory forever. And then we have a bunch of commitments that we make to each other out loud with words. Every month we reaffirm this in our own members meetings, our own family meetings. We are serious about this. This is what one anothering and covenant love and unity looks like in this church. We will eagerly maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace by walking together in love and in the Spirit, and by putting away all bitterness, wrath, and injurious speech. With humility and gentleness, patience and love, we will be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven us. We will carry each other's burdens, rejoicing with those who rejoice and weeping with those who weep. We will train our children in the instruction of the Lord, seeking to walk in a way that adorns the gospel of Christ before our family, friends, and neighbors. We will strive to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age as we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We will not neglect to gather together, but will support and treasure the biblical preaching of the whole counsel of God, the faithful observance of baptism and the Lord's Supper, the loving exercise of church discipline, and the careful responsibilities of healthy church membership. We will contribute cheerfully and generously to the expenses of the church, the relief of the poor, and the advancement of the gospel, both to our neighbors and the nations. And we will, when we move from this place, unite as soon as possible with some other church where we can carry out the spirit of this covenant and the principles of God's word. In all these things, we rely on God who has made a new and everlasting covenant with us, saying, they shall be my people and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and for the good of their children after them. I will not turn away from doing good to them and I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. And I will rejoice in doing them good with all my heart, with all my soul. In all, in and because of Jesus, we make this covenant together. Amen. So one of the things you notice about Jesus in the Gospels is that he goes ahead and just lays out. He just lays things out. Hey, you want to follow me? Well, I'm homeless and you might die and you got to take up a cross. Jesus doesn't try to. He's a terrible salesman. He lays out the costs right out of the gate. And I just want you to be like, it is just really helpful when you walk into a church and they're just upfront with you. Here's the upfront. In this church, this is the bottom line, we're going to call everyone to become disciples of Jesus by being baptized and to one another in covenant love and unity. We're just going to continue to beat that drum until we run out of breath or we close down. We're just going to invite people into that again and again and again and again. That's what this church is about. And I would encourage you to come all in. 
I know some of you are kind of testing this out. Some of this is kind of new to you, and that's totally fine. But if, if you're wanting kind of just this half-hearted sort of in-out, I would encourage you not to stay there forever. Don't resolve to just be sort of kind of in. I think church is super boring when you're only half-hearted in it. It doesn't work. It won't work. The Jesus thing doesn't work in kind of a half-hearted sort of thing. So I would just encourage you to consider, and I know some of, many of us are in process on this, so I don't mean to push anyone. But I do mean to say that the church is the most fun and most effective when we're all in, when it becomes this treasure in the field that we sell it all and we are, we're in. We're in. That's how this thing works. So at our church, to join our church in membership, you come to one of our Redeeming Grace seminars where I try to talk you out of joining our church. No, I just lay out exactly who we are, what we're about, where we're going. There's a membership application that we ask people to fill out that I follow up with in an interview, and then we vote you into membership in our church. And we commit to doing this kind of, this kind of life together according to this covenant. So that's what it is, a simple invitation. In this church, we'll call everyone to become disciples of Jesus by being baptized with one another in covenant love and unity. You can always come whether or not you jump in on this or not, but just know that we're just going to keep inviting. We're just going to keep inviting to be a part of this kind of thing. So, the man was awakened at night. The voice said, Daddy, I'm pregnant. He wrote her a loving and gracious letter, and when the daughter got the letter, she was shocked because she wasn't pregnant. Somebody called the wrong number. How do we know about that letter? Because she guarded that letter with her life. Through a human error and the providence of God, she found out how much her daddy really loved her. And she cherished that letter. She published that letter. 2 Corinthians 3 says this, You yourselves, meaning the church, are our letter of recommendation written on hearts to be known and read by all. And you show, by your proclamation of the gospel, by your right administration of the, of the ordinances, and by your one anothering of each other, you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered to us. Not written, written not with ink, but the spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human heart. This local church is the Father's letter to the scared, broken, ashamed, guilty daughter, to our community. We're the letter. We're the letter of grace to this community. Let's reflect his heart accurately. Let's take that seriously. Let's affirm and include. Let's exclude and deny. Let's call everyone to become disciples of Jesus. Let's call everyone to pass through the waters of baptism and put on the team jersey to join the team and make, make part of loving one another through covenant membership and love and unity. I, kind of, I sometimes think, what about that girl that did call? The girl that did call the wrong number? I wonder if she got a letter. I wonder if she got a letter of grace. The, one, the, the daughter who, who didn't, who got the surprise letter, found out that she needed that kind of grace from her father, that she didn't even realize it. She cherished it. But I wonder about the one who called the wrong number. Did she get that letter? And I wonder if there's some of you today that maybe we're the letter today of God's grace and kindness. You can be forgiven. You can be made right. You can come in to the kingdom. And maybe there's some people we know that have never gotten the letter they're getting beat up by decisions they've made, circumstances they've been through, and they need so dearly to hear from their father, to receive a letter from their father, and we're the letter. 
we're the letter. So maybe today you need to receive the letter of grace from your Father. You can be forgiven. I love you. Come in. And maybe some of us need to extend the invitation of the letter to others. Invite them to come and be part of this thing. Let's pray. God, we thank you that we exist for these things. That we have been called out by your gospel and so we prioritize that above all. Thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.